Growing up, uh, my dad, he traveled quite a bit for a living. Uh, he was a public communicator. I used to tell people that he was a motivational speaker, uh, and then a certain SNL skit came out with Chris Farley, and it kind of gave it a negative connotation. So I started telling people he was a public communicator, but he would basically travel from conference to retreat center to camp. He'd travel all over the country, kind of making his speaking tour, if you will. Now, in the summer, this was awesome, because this meant we got to go on all these different vacations with dad because of his job. But during the school year, it meant that at least a couple of days, every single week, he was out on the road speaking at some new place, usually somewhere here right in the United uh, States. And, and when you're a little kid, right, like when dad leaves, as soon as he walks out the door, there's this, this eager anticipation, okay, when is dad going to be home? And as a little kid, you don't really have this great concept of time. And so every single morning and every single day, you'd ask mom, mom, when is dad going to be home? Is dad going to be home today? And eventually she says, yes, today is the day. And so that entire day, you're kind of waiting by the front door. You're looking out the front window window, waiting for dad's car to finally come pulling in the driveway, and when it would, it's like, oh my gosh, dad is finally home, and you go busting out the front door, you don't even put your shoes on, and after you kind of give dad, you know, that token hug, then inevitably, me and my siblings, I have three of them, we'd be looking at my dad going, what'd you get me? He did. Dad, what did you get me? Because you have just went on this crazy adventure to Ohio, and, and we definitely deserve a souvenir. So, Dad, what did you get me? It, it seems like we were never totally satisfied that, that Dad was just home. We, we wanted something from him. And usually, not always, but, but usually, he'd smirk, and he'd start digging around in his briefcase. He'd start digging around and and his luggage, and we'd sit there. We couldn't wait to see what he was going to pull out. He'd pull out some sort of souvenir. Now, sometimes we could tell he's being a little bit lazy. My guy got a keychain at, like, the kiosk right at the airport. Other times it was a little bit more creative. Sometimes it was maybe just some candy, but we didn't really care as long as Dad brought us something. Well, well now that I'm a father, I'm kind of figuring out the not-so-subtle message that this sort of communicates to us dads. I don't travel too much for, for my job. I'm fortunate enough to basically be pretty close to home all the time, but obviously I work every day. You know, I'm gone for eight to 10 hours every single day, and about 50% of the time, when I just get home from work, my two oldest children, Malachi and Logan, they're waiting for me. They're, they're excited that dad is home, or maybe they didn't see my car pull in the driveway, and I open the door, and they're like, daddy's home. And after they again kind of give me that hug, they're excited dad's there, they, they ask me the same question. Dad, what'd you get me? Dad, did you bring anything home for us today? And it's like, I'm looking down at Malachi and Logan. I'm like, you guys, aren't I good enough? Do, do, do I really need every day to bring you some special treat, some gift every time I come walking through the doors? And they're looking back at me going, yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. Every day you should be bringing us some sort of treat, some sort of gift. I mean, why are we going to get excited for you? We want something from you. It's like my three and my four-year-old are, beating into my brain, dad, dad, unless you have something extra for us, we are not all that interested in you. My guess is, is that all of you, whether you're a parent or not, you can probably relate to that in, in some way. And, and here's the thing, early on in our faith journey, for, for most of us, and, and some of you, you're actually at this stage right now, it, it's actually a lot like that. And come on, I, I know it's kind of embarrassing, and you probably never really thought about it in these terms, but we're basically going to God, God, what'd you get me? Come on, God, what'd you get me? What, what do you have for me? What's in it for me? And, 
And if you don't actually really have anything planned right now, I have a whole list of stuff, God, that, that I would like from you. God's kind of this dad who's perpetually arriving home from a trip with his kids waiting for him at the front door. And rather than just giving them a hug and rather than just hugging them and telling them, God, you know, we love you so, so much. We're asking him instead, what'd you get me? What'd you get for us this time? Now, some of you, you guys, you're processing this, you're like, okay, yeah, n- never thought about it maybe <laughs> in those terms, but yeah, that is kind of what my relationship with God is like, but what, what's wrong with that? Here's, here's the problem with this. It's impossible, it is impossible to have an authentic relationship with someone from whom you're always trying to get something. You cannot do it because there's an agenda and, and, and every single one of us have an example if we thought about it from our own lives. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's a neighbor. But, but it's that person that every time they call, every time they come strolling towards your cubicle, every time you see their name come across on a text, you're almost instinctively rolling your eyes going, oh my gosh, what do they want this time? impossible to have an authentic relationship with these type of people. And and, and this is is what I think is so great about a relationship with God. What's so great about following Jesus. See, see with Jesus, we're given everything all at once, right on the front end. Because Jesus gave us himself Jesus put all of the cards on the table at the very beginning so we never have to peer around and wonder, okay, Jesus, what else do you have back there? John, who's one of the guys that spent virtually every waking moment with Jesus during his time on earth, we would call him one of the 12 disciples, uh, and he in fact recorded for us what, what he observed, what he saw during his time with Jesus. John in a verse that you've all at least probably heard of before, arguably the most popular verse in all of scripture, he, he frames it this way. He says, for God so loved the world, for God so loved you that he gave. Well, well what did you give? He gave his one and his only son. That whoever, including you who are watching right now, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, see, there's nothing else to get from Jesus because he already gave everything up to and including his own life for you because he loves you. Because he cares about you that much. You could put it this way, Christianity begins where every other religion hopes to end. Day one, moment number one of having a relationship with Jesus, you are given what every other religion hopes to get you to, that eternal security, that that, that right standing with God. And and if you're watching right now and that doesn't get you particularly excited, I, I am so glad that you decided to tune in this morning. Because when John 3, 16, that, that, that whole for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When, when those go from just words to reality, 
When, when that goes from just mere theology, when that goes from just your head to your heart, it changes everything. And so today, we are entering into part seven of seven of this series that some of you have probably been wondering, like, oh my goodness, are we ever going to stop doing this series? Again, today is actually the last day. This series that we have been calling, He Did What? We've been taking a look at, at some, certainly not all, but, but some uh, of the he did what moments that Jesus was a part of during his relatively short amount of time on earth. Jesus' earthly ministry, it only lasted a little bit over three years. We, we kind of traditionally refer to these he did what moments as, as miracles. But some of Jesus' early followers, they would actually call them signs because they actually felt that they were signs helping to reveal exactly who Jesus claimed to be because, and this might come as a surprise to some of you who are watching, you shouldn't believe in Jesus just for the sake of belief. You, you should not believe in Jesus just because it sounds like the right thing to do. None of Jesus' original followers actually didn't follow Jesus because of faith and I don't think you should either. They followed Jesus because of what they saw, because of what they heard, because of what they observed, because of what they witnessed. And fortunately for all of us who are watching right now, a lot of these original followers recorded what they saw and recorded what they observed so that you too might believe. Now, by the way, again, this is a little bit of a longer series. If you haven't been with us for every week of this series, I would really, really recommend that you head over to grumlaw.com slash messages, either watch or listen to the messages there, especially if you're skeptical of this whole Christianity thing. Or as always, you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcasts. I, I promise that going back and watching these messages will, will be a far better use of your time than like watching your 14th straight show uh, during this quarantine. Again, th this will be a, a little bit better than that. But today, as promised, we're going to begin taking a look at, at what is perhaps Jesus' most popular miracle, arguably his most popular sign. It's, it's, it's one that I'm almost positive that regardless of how little time you may have spent in a church, you probably at least heard of it before. And, and it forces us, and I love this about this miracle, it forces us to deal with this whole what's in it for me dilemma that at some point, every single one of us have faced. Now, now a little context here before we jump into this miracle. Uh, Jesus, uh, at this point in his ministry, already there are always these massive crowds that are following Jesus around. There's constantly people around Jesus. People are constantly trying to just get a look at Jesus. There are massive crowds, thousands at a time, that are always forming around Jesus. That They just want to get a glimpse of the supposed miracle worker. And so in this particular case, he intentionally heads into this really remote area with just him and, and his disciples, these 12 guys he spent so much time with, but, but wouldn't you know, it, it doesn't work. The people, as, as they always seem to, they, they end up finding Jesus. And again, John records this stuff for us. John, who is one of those 12 guys that spent all this time with Jesus. John, who witnessed this stuff firsthand, he didn't hear it from somebody else. So here's John's account of this particular miracle. He says, a huge crowd kept following him, him being Jesus, wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Now, now again, that's an important detail that John gives us right here. And I'm gonna keep doing my best throughout this series and throughout the existence of this church to, to remember and, and remind us that, that, that they followed because of what they saw, not because of faith. 
Nobody in the first century was following Jesus because of faith. They followed because of what they saw, because of what they heard, because of what they observed. So, So Jesus and his disciples, they try to get away from these crowds, but despite their best efforts, the crowd has once again found Jesus. Thousands of people in this particular case. And they're just hoping to get a glimpse of this rabbi, this guy that was apparently pulling off some pretty incredible stuff. It says, then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down. And you get the impression that Jesus was just like spent. He just, he sits down, he's ready to relax with his disciples around him. And then again, John gives us another important detail. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Now, This is a really important detail that we're given here because it helps to to explain the crowd's response later to this. Now, Passover, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's actually a Jewish celebration of God delivering the nation of Israel from under the oppression of Egypt and Pharaoh and then going ahead and delivering them into the promised land, this land that God had promised them. And Passover, in addition to that, it also served as a reminder that they needed another Moses. Moses was the guy who split the Red Sea, who led them out of Egypt. But they needed another person to come along and lead them against Rome. We've been talking about this throughout this series, that the Jewish people could not stand being under the authority of Rome because, after all, it was their land that God had given them, that God had promised them in the first place. Jesus, he soon saw a huge crowd of people coming toward him. Again, thousands of people making their way towards Jesus. He's just sat down. He's ready to relax with his disciples. And before you know it, he looks up and he's like, gosh, dang it, they have found me again. And Jesus, he's, he's not a dummy. He, he knows exactly why they've come all this way. He, he knows why the people have been looking for him because they want another miracle. They want a trick. Jesus, what'd you get us? In, in, in a lot of ways, come on, they're kind of like us. They, they wanted something. That they're more enamored with the miracles that he was performing than who the signs were pointing to. So turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Now, most of you, who again are, are watching right now, you're at least kind of familiar with how the story ends. But, but, but at this point, nobody is planning to feed anyone. Again, crowds are constantly following around Jesus. And, and at no point before have they ever worried about feeding the crowds. It's like, Jesus, you are here to heal people, not feed people. So why are we going to start this now? But Jesus, as he always did, he, he knew exactly what he was up to. He continues, he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Per, per, per usual, this isn't just going to be kind of this random act of kindness. Jesus was exceedingly intentional. And, and so Philip, he, he replies to Jesus, e- even if we worked for months, we would not have enough money to feed them. We, we would never have enough money to feed like this size of a crowd. In other words, Jesus, that there is not a place that exists on planet earth with enough food to feed this quantity of people. Like that there is not one place we could go to that, that would have enough food to feed all the people that have gathered around you right now. 
And, and, and I suspect that, honestly, if it was anybody else but Jesus that would have been asking this question, I, I think Philip would have been mo- more annoyed. I, I think he would have replied with a far more smart aleck response. And, and Jesus, another important detail, he, detail here, he's actually intentionally asked Philip this question because Philip was actually from this area. He, he's looking at Philip going, hey, Philip, what restaurant would you recommend here in your hometown that would be able to feed all these people? And, and Philip, he's like bewildered. He's like, Jesus, I don't think you get it. Like, nowhere. Like, <laughs> there is not a place that exists that, that would be able to feed all of the people that have gathered here to come and hear from you. Like, get it out of your head. That restaurant doesn't exist. It says, then Andrew, another one of the, the disciples, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. And you have to imagine again, if you're sitting there among the disciples, this would have sounded so ridiculous. And you have to think that, that Andrew was simply brown-nosing Jesus. It says, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and, and two fish. This would have sounded utterly ridiculous. And I have to think that this is just a prime example of Andrew brown-nosing towards Jesus. It says, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. All the disciples are going, okay, cool, Andrew. Like, thanks for pointing that out to us, but what good is that going to do? Do you see the number of people that are here right now? And it's almost as if he recognizes the stupidity of his comment and he calls attention to it. He says, but, but what good is that with this huge crowd, with all these people that, that are sitting in front of us right now? And so, again, I, I don't know about you, but I sometimes kind of daydream with these stories and I just kind of picture this little kid who's up front and he's ready to hear from Jesus. He found Jesus and he's so excited about this and he pulls out his lunchbox because he came prepared, right? He brought his food, he brought his lunch for the day and you know, when the disciples stroll over and they're like, hey kid, give us your lunch. And he's like, no, it's not my fault that you didn't come prepared. I'm not giving you my lunch. Like, come on, kid, you, you wanna go meet Jesus? It'd be pretty sweet. And he's like, okay, I, I'm in. And Jesus, upon seeing this, this food, he apparently smirks and maybe he thinks, yeah, I can work with that. And so he says, tell everyone to sit down. So everyone is in the whole crowd. And so they all sat down on the grassy slopes and the men alone numbered, again, another detail given to us by John, about 5,000. And again, the disciples are, are, are listening to this going, okay, Normally we do this through like a line, more like of a buffet system, but it doesn't really matter because we don't have enough food to feed all of these people anyway. Jesus, why, why are you having everybody sit down right now? You, you, you're gonna, you know, give this false hope that we have enough food to feed them, which we, we obviously do not. Like, are, 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 are you serious right now? Did, did you not hear us correctly? We have five loaves of bread. We have two fish. We, we, we know that maybe like you're the whole son of God thing and, but it seems like you don't really understand portions. Like this is not going to go too far. We, we don't even have enough food for each person to just get one bite. Now, now the reason here that, that John specifically mentions 5,000, and there have long been theological debates. It's like, okay, did he not value women? Did he not value children? Why does he only mention the men? I don't think that's the case at all because Jesus was constantly bringing value to women. He was constantly bringing value to children. No, I think this is notable, and the fact that he only mentions the 5,000 men is because it's the equivalent of a fully formed Roman legion, a a detail that will become important here later on in this interaction. But, but there would have been, some scholars estimate, including the women and children there that day, closer to 20,000 people. 
And so it says, then Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks to God, which again, we read this stuff because some of you, you've grown up in church and we think, oh, isn't that wonderful? This would have been absolutely ridiculous. Can, can, can you even imagine how foolish this would have felt? Like Jesus, you know, maybe a couple people in the front row and the disciples, he's like, awesome, we have our bread and we have our fish. You guys, let's give thanks to God for the food. You think those guys right in that moment, they're closing their eyes as Jesus is praying? No, they're looking around at each other like, what is this guy doing? Has he lost it? Did you see how many people are here right now? But Jesus just goes ahead and blesses the meal like the food trucks are about to come rolling in. And it says he distributed them to the people. He distributes the bread to the people. And afterward, he did the exact same thing with the fish. He blesses it and he distributes it. And, and they all, and not just all as in the disciples, they all as in the 20,000 people ate as much as they wanted. And after every single person was full, all 20,000 of them, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. This would have taken hours. This would have taken the better part of the day. And, And you have to wonder, at what point did it dawn on the crowd that there were no wagons, that there were no carts full of food? When did that murmur begin? When did the crowd start going, where is all this food coming from? Where are they getting all of this? So the disciples, they listened to Jesus. So they picked up the pieces and they filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten the five barley loaves. He doesn't just provide enough food for the crowd, but there are leftovers. And the question, perhaps just here for a moment, for for just this split second while they're full, that the question that begins sweeping through the crowd, that they all begin asking, and the question that you should be asking, you who are watching right now, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely, surely, he is the prophet that we have been expecting. They start looking at each other going, oh my goodness, this really is who people have been saying that he is. This really is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. And for just a moment, while they're full, they take their minds off their appetites. They they take their minds off of their desires. And they shift their attention from the sign to the one whom the sign is pointing to. Could this really be the Son of God? When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. When Jesus recognizes, oh, I see what's going on here, he, he, he slips away by himself. And right here, this is the significance of that mention of the 5,000. Again, the equivalent to a fully formed Roman legion. 
because the crowd begins thinking to themselves, okay, surely if Moses could deliver us from Egypt and out of the oppression from Pharaoh, this Messiah, this guy who just took a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish and turned it into enough food to feed 20,000, this Messiah, surely he can deliver us from Rome. And these 5,000 men, along with Jesus, could begin the march down the country. And the crowd, this group of people, would keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger as they went until they finally got to Rome. They would have the power to overthrow Rome and finally their prayers would be answered and the land would be theirs. But Jesus knew. He knew exactly what the crowd was thinking and he knew their hearts, that that, that it had very, very little to do with who he was and it had everything to do with what he could do for them. And so he slips away. He escapes the crowd. But before he goes away here by himself, he he forces his disciples into a boat. We can read about this just a couple of verses later. And he tells them, okay, go ahead and head to the other side. And I'll eventually, I'll meet you over there. And then again, he slips away from the crowd and he spends some much needed time alone with his heavenly father. And eventually, we don't exactly know how much time has passed. He he catches up with his disciples on the other side of the lake as well. And once again, they, they, they think, okay, maybe we've escaped the crowd this time, but it's only for a moment. It's only temporary. And the crowd, the people once again find Jesus. And, and Jesus this time, he, he takes a different approach. Rather than feeding them, rather than giving them another trick, rather than showing them another sign, he, he instead decides to call them out. And consequently, call all of us out. See, see, among that crowd, that there were a lot of people. Watching this service right now, there, there are a lot of people, many of you who have been a part of this church thing for the majority of your life. That, that there's a lot of people that are still rushing to the door going, Jesus, what'd you get me? Come on, Jesus, what do you have for me? What's in it for me? And as long as you continue to stay focused on it, you are going to miss it. You're going to miss them. You're going to miss who is standing in front of you. So the crowd waiting for another trick, another miracle, another sign. And again, Jesus instead decides to call them out, to to call us out, to call me out. Jesus replies, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs. Come on, you don't want to be around me because you suddenly have made the connection and, and you see the deeper meaning here behind these miracles. No, no, no. You're just here for the food. You're just here for what's in it for you. You have completely missed the point. But don't be so concerned about, he continues, stop wasting your life away. Stop worrying about, stop living for. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. He's going, I can give you something so much better. I'm standing in front of you right now. For God the Father has given me the seal of his 
approval. He's going, come on, don't you realize what these miracles, what these signs are pointing to you? Do you not recognize yet who I am? God has authorized me, he's saying, to work on his behalf. Even though you don't recognize it yet, this is so much bigger than overthrowing Rome. In fact, 2,000 years later, people are still going to be talking about this day. They're going to be talking about you and that crowd. But yet all you guys can think about is lunch. And they answered, they responded, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? Like, how, how quick were they to forget? Okay, Jesus, I mean, th- th- that feeding of that whole crowd of all of us, I mean, that was, that was pretty impressive, but how about just one more miracle? H- how about just one more sign? I mean, what else do you have in store for us? What, what'd you get us? Come on, what, what do you have for us this time? And so many of you who are watching right now, and we began to touch on this a little bit last week, you're stuck right here. If God would just, then I'd believe. I mean, if God would just, then I'd go to church. If God would just, then I'd start giving. If God would just do, then I'd get involved. If God would just do this one more thing, then I'd believe. These people just witnessed a a pretty impressive miracle, but yet they still want more. And they continue. They say, after all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. Our our ancestors, when when Moses, you know, delivered us out of Egypt, like God gave him enough food for every single day. And it's like Jesus is probably going, good grief. Like you guys are back to lunch again? (laughs) I mean, is, is all you think about is food? I mean, think about this. These people are standing in the very presence of God on earth. The the Savior of the world. God in the flesh. And and all they can think about is is their appetite. Their own desires. What they want. Jesus, what'd you get me? Come on, Jesus. What'd you get me? And read this next part for yourself, but after Jesus starts calling them out and he continues to expound upon this, at the end of this chapter, most of the crowd, most of the people, they walk away. They leave. They unfollow Jesus. Because apparently Jesus has ran out of tricks. Because because they've gotten what they wanted. The, the, The magic has left the magician, so they're no longer interested. Well, once they realized that there was nothing else in it for them, they unfollowed. Well, once dad got home from the trip and they realized that this time he really hadn't brought them anything, they were out. And given their circumstances, I, I think in some ways we can give them a pass. They kind of have an excuse. But every person who is watching right now, you don't. I don't. Because as I've been saying throughout this series, we 
all have the benefit of hindsight because we are on the other side of a resurrected Savior. We we all know that this ends with Jesus actually backing up these claims. We, We know that this ends with the guy predicting his own death and predicting his own resurrection and then actually pulling that off. We, we know that there's nothing else to get from Jesus because he already gave himself on a cross. He took the weight of your sin, of the entire world, on his shoulders so that you could be made right with God. He loves you that much. We, we know there's nothing else to get because he already gave it all. Dad, unless you have something extra for us, we're not all that interested in you. Jesus, what'd you get us? And as long as that continues to be your focus, you're missing out on the main thing. You are hung up on some temporary fleeting request and you're missing who is standing in front of you. The the, the God of the universe came down, think about this, humbled himself, came to earth and became flesh because he loves you so much. Because he so desperately wants a relationship with you. But but, but you're not ever going to have that relationship if you continue to operate this way. Because remember, it is impossible to have an authentic relationship with someone from whom you're always trying to get something. So stop trying. Stop treating him like this genie in the bottle, like this lucky rabbit's foot, and instead choose to put your faith, choose to put your belief in Jesus. Recognize who is waiting on you with open arms who's already made the first move, who put himself on a cross for you. And remember, as we wrap up this series, and as we've been reminding you this entire time, you're not invited to believe, you're not invited to put your trust in Jesus for the sake of belief, because it sounds nice. It's way better than that. John, we've, we've visited this verse a couple of times. He, he wraps up his letter by saying, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs. This is just a handful of them, in addition to the ones recorded in this book. Not just the greater book, the Bible. He's specifically just referring to his document where he records what he saw, what he observed. But these, he says, I wrote this stuff down. These are written so that you, as in you watching right now, may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life. Something that every single one of us are after. A peace that doesn't make sense. A true contentment, a true joy, a peace that surpasses all understanding. You will have that life by the power of Jesus' name. Believe because of what happened. Believe because there is a reason to believe. And Jesus promises us that when we do put our trust in him, that when we throw aside what's in it for me, and this what'd you get us mindset, and we begin to live our lives as a response to what Jesus has done for us, we we forgive, we serve, we we give, we love. Our, Our lives truly become an outpouring of gratitude in response to what Jesus has done for us. 
but you recognize that even if another one of my prayers never get answered, I don't care because I'm so overwhelmed by what God did for me, that, that he gave himself on a cross for me, that, that the God of the universe went to those lengths to win me back, to have a relationship with me, to have a relationship with you. And it's within that relationship that life, the life that John is alluding to here, the peace, the joy, the contentment, that purpose like you have never experienced before, that life becomes available to you because of what Jesus did for you a couple thousand years ago on a cross.